Institute, and today we have an amazing guest with us, Susan Fowler. Susan, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, and your podcast studio, which is magnificent. Yeah, yeah, we kind of have fun in here and, and close all the doors and just have a chit-chat. So, Susan, you're a, a, what I call a subject matter expert, SME, in motivation, and I'm fascinated by the work you're doing, um, and I've learned some things about you. You're a professor a uh, Master of Science in Executive Leadership at uh, University of San Diego. That's right. And uh, 21 years. 21 years. And you also also work for the Blanchard um, Companies. I'm a consulting partner. Yeah. Senior, cool. excuse me. Senior. Senior consulting partner, yeah. <laughs> it has nothing to do with age, right? Just no, a position, no, right? No, yeah, no. yeah. Um, and everybody knows that I love Ken and right. I've done some work together. So, But I haven't written a book with him. You've written a book with him. Actually, I've so, written like four of them. Yeah, a couple of them, yeah. yeah so yeah. Um, I did get him to write a forward in one of my books, but yeah. So anyway, welcome. And, and I just found out something today that you and I have an interest in a nonprofit together. Um, angel faces? Angel faces. Oh, my word. Yes. Art, really? Lori, my wife, and I have been avid supporters of angel faces for a lot of years. And I have chills. It, I had... was, it was introduced to us through Dr. Chasen yeah. here in San Diego. Uh -huh. And uh, love the work they do because they help, they help girls who have been burned. Um, basically, you get their life back together. And uh, you're a, a board member. Uh, yeah, I'm a rotating board member. I've uh -huh. worked at a number of the retreats, the Angel Faces retreats. And in terms of motivation, the girls in Angel Faces that um, come to the retreats and that um, participate in the Angel Faces uh, activities are the greatest examples that I have ever seen mm -hmm. um, of, of how to shift your motivational outlook and if you interview the girls that have gotten to the other side of the tragedy, and you know, I could spend our whole hour just talking I, about I, this, I, which I, I won't know, do. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But um, I encourage anyone to go on to www.angelfacesretreat and right. take a look, because the, every one of them will tell you, and I'll, I actually tear up every time I talk about this. But that, despite the, I mean, the horrific um, changes to their bodies, the scarring, the loss of the hair, the, you know, just all of the physical uh, things that have happened to them, they wouldn't change anything now. Right. Because they find that they, they have a greater sense of purpose, uh, more meaning in their life, that... Yeah, it's 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 an extraordinary transformation, and Angel Faces is really a critical key in that transformation. They are, they are. We love what what, what uh, they do. Yeah, uh, Lori's a big fan, and let your your our listeners know, Lori and I are behind the scenes people. Mm. We're not in the front, uh, so we like to support causes like Angel Faces because they do some. Uh, Amazing, amazing work. So, thank you for that. Yeah, I just learned that this morning. So, wow, that's, that's cool. exciting. Pretty yes. cool. Uh, so, tell us a little about the work you do in uh, motivation because I'm fascinated by some things. And oh, by the way, I took your survey this morning. Oh, you did? That what's I your did. mo? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, we'll talk about that in a little okay. bit. So, okay, good. Uh, but uh, tell us a little about about, about the work you're doing. Uh, your latest book. 
okay. that has some scientific uh, information in it. So I can't can't wait to hear hear about it. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for saying that you saw me as a subject matter expert. One of the things that I've really tried to do for the past number of years is to make a distinction between being a thought leader and a subject matter expert. I think what you see a lot on the internet are thought leaders, people who have figured out how to use the internet effectively and to get their brand out there in front of people. Exactly, yep. And sometimes they're espousing things they understand and sometimes they're not. You're right. Um, a subject matter expert is someone who delves very deeply into a particular subject and if they understand how to use the internet effectively, they then also can become a thought leader. Exactly. So I, I'd rather be a, a, a subject matter expert who becomes a thought leader than a thought leader who's not a subject matter Absol- expert. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. so that's kind of my thing. But, um, gosh, almost 40 years ago, I became a vegetarian overnight. And this was really strange because I was a huge meat eater, fish, meat. Uh, I even had a pot of pork fat on my stove because I figured everything tasted better with pork <laughs> fat. So I would cook everything with pork fat. And I watched a documentary uh, about the way we treat the animals that we eat. And literally overnight, never ate another piece of meat or soups that are flavored with broth. Oh, really? Yeah. um, I will buy some leather shoes every five or ten years. Um, Mm -hmm. But other than that, I'm I'm very, very um, strict. Sometimes I'm vegan. You know, I try to be as... Anyway, but the point that I want to make about it is that everyone would say, Oh, my gosh, you are so disciplined. Wow, look at your willpower. And it took absolutely no willpower or discipline. And that fascinated me. Like, wow, how did I overnight change a major facet of my life? And it was, quote unquote, easy. Um, So so I, I went on a quest to try to understand that. And I didn't understand it until I discovered the research that was being done on motivation by a community of academic uh, researchers called self-determination theory. Mm -hmm. And there's thousands of these researchers all over the world. And every three years, they come together in a conclave and share their research. And I've been to every one of their their conferences. I've even presented my own research, my husband's research at their conferences. Um, And the other day, I just have to tell you this because it was very exciting. Um, Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan, who were the two fathers of self-determination theory, were being interviewed by the APA Monitor, which is the premier publication of the American Psychological Association. And so they were talking about the research and what's the latest research. And the um, writer said, um, the journalist said, but, uh, how do you apply this? This is fascinating. How do you apply it? And they said, we need for you to contact Susan Fowler. Right. Because yep. she's the one who's actually applying the research. So that's been my quest since finding it over 25 years ago, is to become totally steeped in that research, but then to get to the other side of complexity and to understand, okay, what do you do with it? Right. And that, that's why we love the work you're doing. Because we're the same, we're implementers mm, in servant exactly. leadership. So, how do you take what you you know and learn? How, now, how do you apply it to the real world? Right. And and really put it to work. And and that's what fascinates me about that. So, you you delve into motivation. You had a personal story. Uh, but the question I want to ask: What motivates Susan today? Well, the the thing that I I need for people to understand is that you're always motivated. Oh, really? Yeah, you're always motivated. The question is the type of motivation that you have. Mm -hmm. So when you took the survey on my website, what's your MO? What you're really getting to the heart of is 
What's the quality of the motivation that you have? See, the big difference um, in the shift that I'm trying to get people to understand around motivation is that we've always thought motivation was about the quantity of motivation you have or, you know, what motivates you or how much motivation do you have? Are you motivated or are you not motivated? What the research says is you're always motivated. So the question is, what's the quality of the motivation that you mm -hmm. have? Mm -hmm. So I could say, oh, I'm really excited about something. But it's the reason I'm excited that matters. You could say, well, I really want to win. Winning's not bad, but the reason you want to win is what matters. Right. Um, I have a goal. I'm really driven by this goal. But what's driving you? What's the quality of what's driving you? So that's, that's the message I'd like to get across today is that not all motivation is created equal and that you can choose to have a high-quality motivational experience anytime, anywhere you choose. So when you say, what motivates Susan these days? What I would say is there are times when I have what's called suboptimal motivation mm -hmm. um, where I'm um, motivated by ego or power or status or money or an incentive or being better than someone else. And now I can recognize when I'm motivated by those suboptimal motivators, uh, what I call fatal distractions. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. And, and I can, through the skill of motivation, I can shift my motivational outlook to be optimal. So I think there's a couple things there that I, I hope people find a little bit intriguing, and that is that there's suboptimal and optimal motivation, so the quality of your motivation matters, mm -hmm. and that you can actually learn a skill for how to shift between suboptimal and optimal. So I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. I love to interface with people. Mm -hmm. And if I have a choice of working on a stack of paper, yes. right, uh -huh. or interface with people, or work on people-related stuff, I would rather do the people stuff. Sure. So I'm not, I think what you're saying is, my quality of motivation is less for that stack of paper than it is to go work on something I really love to do. Well, you've, you've opened up a, an interesting line of thought. If, so if you'll indulge me just a minute. Sure. Um, so what you're really talking about is a personality characteristic, mm -hmm. that you are um, more interested in the interactions with individuals than you are in the tasks or the things that you want to get done. And a lot of people who know personality theory understand you know, those distinctions, right? So we do have a proclivity to um, appreciate certain things more than others. Mm -hmm. And if I could just give you an example of my own, because I, it's relative to me, but you, we can then come back to yours. And that is, um, like you, if I, if, if I have a choice of talking or listening, mm -hmm. what do you think I prefer? Okay. Yeah, no, I, I love to talk, right? Yeah. Um, I get paid to talk. It's really exciting. Um, but um, listening is hard for me. So that is my dispositional preference, right? Gotcha. Okay. So let's say that I know that I need to listen. And so it's not something I'm comfortable doing. The only way I am going to ever learn to listen or actually listen is if I shift my motivation for listening. Well, how do I do that? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the skill. So what I would have to do is I would have to say to myself, I don't have to, but I would say to myself, um, okay, Susan, you say you want to listen. This is a skill you want to incorporate or behavior you want to incorporate into your leadership. So why would you listen? And I start thinking about why would I listen? And I would think, uh, well, because I could learn. And like, wow, 
I value learning. Mm -hmm. That is one of my values. I say I value compassion. Well, well, what's the greatest way to demonstrate compassion? It's to listen. Listen, Okay, so if I say that if I could really look at my values and then I could say, wow, I can align those values with listening, all of a sudden I'm listening. Not because it's fun, not because it's comfortable, but because it's meaningful. Right. Because I've been able to align it with something bigger than my discomfort. Right, exactly, exactly. I like to say... Listening is a form of love. Absolutely. And if you really care about people, you will zip up your lips and sit back and listen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you you mentioned a word uh, on your website about activating people in their motivation. Can you Mm. explain that a little bit to me? Because I'm fascinated with the word activate. Mm, Interesting. Well, a lot of leaders think it's their role to motivate people. And if, if I could just share with you a, a, a little incident that I thought was really fun. Um, I was in China, and I was sharing these ideas with a group of leaders, managers. And I have a slide, and it comes up, and it says, a leader cannot motivate anyone. What you can do is create an environment where people are more likely to be optimally motivated. Right. And there's this manager, and you know how, well, I don't know, maybe your listeners know, um, that if you're teaching or training in China, you don't ask questions of the big group because people don't usually speak out in a large group. Right. You put them into small groups because then they'll interact. Exactly. And so it's very unusual to have anyone actually speak up in the large group. And as soon as that slide came up and said, a manager cannot motivate anyone, this manager just yells out. He says, shocking, shocking. And we all turned and we looked at him and I said, what's so shocking? He goes, it's just shocking. My whole career, I've been told, you have to motivate people. Right. And now mm-hmm. you're telling me I can't do it. Right. And I said, that's right. I said, how do you feel about that? He goes, just shocked and relieved. And relieved, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because, because HR people are constantly you know, trying to get people to, uh, leaders to motivate people, and the leaders are going, ah. And so what happens is they keep defaulting to these tactics for motivating people that we know scientifically through research do not work. Right. So through incentives, through rewards, through pressure, stress, um, threats, you know, all of these carrots and sticks that we use to motivate people, we know that they're, um, they're not effective. Mm-hmm. But it's because they have a, a leadership competency that you have to motivate people. Right. Right. So what I'm sharing with leaders is you can learn the skill to facilitate other people's motivational shift. So what you're really doing is activating people's optimal motivation. You're not motivating them, but you're facilitating their shift, their internal shift, so they can be optimally motivated. Right, now you you also talk about self-motivation. Yes, oh absolutely. And you kind of shared your story earlier, Mm -hmm. that was a a little bit of self-motivation. Yeah, but I, I have to tell you, you know, people go, oh, wow, you must have really mastered this. And, you know, of course, my new book is called Master Your Motivation. You, you mentioned scientific, and I want to ask you about your book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah because um, what I try to do in this book, um, well, I, I have this motto, or I don't know if it's motto, but this way of being in the world that is you teach what you most need to learn. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Exactly. Oh, man, I love that one. Yep. So Master Your Motivation. Um So the thing is, I wake up every morning in what's called the imposed motivational outlook. The imposed motivational outlook is when you're motivated by guilt, pressure, stress, 
um, shame, you know, um, all of these negative connotations. And maybe you and your listeners have experienced this where, like, for example, you send out a meeting invitation and it's you're calling the meeting, right? right? And then the day comes and it's on your calendar and you go, oh, I can't believe I have to go to that meeting. Yep, exactly. <laughs> right? yep. uh-huh. Okay. That's the imposed motivational outlook. And you you created it. Right. So, so a lot of the imposed motivation that we feel comes from outside, it, the expectations that we want to please others or the pressure we feel from others. Anytime we say, oh, I have to do something, that's the imposed motivational outlook. Um, but we also do it to ourselves a lot. And what I realized in this course of studying motivation was that you can also have just kind of a predisposition for a certain type of motivation based on your life life view. Right. And so I have always lived my life um, with a lot of pressure to meet certain standards or to meet other people's expectations or my own high expectations. And it's caused stress in my life. Right. So what I realized was um, I could wake up and think differently. So I wake up every morning now and I say to myself, I walk in grace with generosity and gratitude. And and it just kind of shifts my motivation. But all day long, I find myself needing to use the skill of motivation to shift. So it's it's something that is a skill. Um, more and more, I mean, like just driving here this morning, I was in a lot of traffic. I left really early because I wanted to be here early. I like to be yeah. early. And I got into so much traffic, and I was like three or five minutes late. And I'm like under so much pressure. I'm like, and then I stop, and I go, okay, I have a mindful moment. Wow, what's causing me the stress? Mm-hmm. Well, because I have expectations of myself to be early. I don't want to let other people down. And then I have to just take a deep breath. I go, Susan, you did your best. You know, you can't help that there was an accident on the 78 and the the 15. Exactly. You know, um, and so I have to talk myself through. I don't have to, but I do. I choose to talk myself through that. Mm -hmm. That's, That's... Understanding the skill for yourself. I'll give you another example later on, but um, that that's just every day I'm using that skill of motivation. So tell us about your new book. What, what's the title of the new book? It's called Master Your Motivation, Three Scientific Truths for Achieving Your Goals. All right. Now I've got to hear about the three scientific truths. I, You know, these are so, so powerful, Art, and, and it really... It can be very simple. You know how something can be simple but not necessarily easy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm with you there. Okay. So the three psychological needs that every human being needs to have satisfied in order to thrive, and we all want to thrive, okay? Nobody wants to be bored. Nobody wants to be worthless. You know, uh, contrary to uh, popular opinion, people don't like being lazy. It's not a preferred way of being. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... These three psychological needs are what are required for thriving. And thriving means that we generate the energy that we need to um, achieve our goals and sustain the motivation for pursuing a goal. So the three psychological needs are choice, connection, and competence. And in my first book, I referred to them in the academic terms, which are autonomy, relatedness, and competence. But my first book, Why Motivating People Doesn't Work and What Does, has been translated into 15 different languages. And my publisher said, Susan, you, you can't keep going with the academic terms. They're too hard to right. translate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this book is more for individuals, and so we need to simplify the language. So I actually reached out to the um, academic community, Richard Ryan and others, and said, you think it's okay if I change those to choice, connection, and competence? Mm-hmm. And they absolutely said that those words embraced the, the science. Yeah, and so what I do in the book is I say, 
how do you, you know, how do you create choice, connection, and competence mm-hmm. in your life throughout mm-hmm. the day or on a particular goal? And it's it's pretty exciting. It's you know what it is, Art. It's the difference when you say I need energy because I'm tired or I'm hungry. It's the difference between eating a candy bar, which gives you energy, mm-hmm. and eating a handful of almonds. Right. They both generate energy, but it's a very different type of energy. And one leads to long-term sustainable energy right. and well-being, mm-hmm. and the other doesn't. Right. And, and that's a choice, connection, and competency. Competence. Competence. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And that's an order? Well, um, here's the thing. It's like a domino effect. You mm-hmm. need to all three. Imagine if you had choice, which means that you feel like you have options, that you're in control of what's going on, that you have freedom within boundaries, not total freedom, but freedom within boundaries. So let's say that you have choice, but you don't have competence. Mm-hmm. You've got all these choices, but you don't have the competence to make the choices right. or to, to, deal with the, to deal with the conclusion of the choice. Okay, or let's say that you have all the competence in the world. You're the smartest person in the world in some area, or you've really mastered something, but you don't have a sense of connection. You don't have genuine sense of belonging, or you don't have um, goal or goals that align with your values or a sense of purpose, or you're not contributing to the greater good, right, which is right. what we mean by connection. Yep. Then your competence is meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, after a while, it'll 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 be shallow or empty, and so. You you really need all three. And so in the book, I describe these three psychological needs or scientific truths as elixirs. Each one of them on their own are extraordinarily powerful. But when you have all three of them, it's like if you mix these three elixirs, it's literally magic. Oh, and okay. things shift. Things change. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm think, when you were saying that, I was thinking motivation squared. Mm. Double the power. Yes. Right? Yeah. 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 Which, can I just say something really fast? Yep. Because you just touched on something that is a, mis, a misunderstanding that a lot of people have about motivation, is that there's two types of motivation, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that um, the more you have, the better. So if you're, like, like, say you're in sales, and you're really intrinsically motivated because you love serving, you love solving problems, you love um, helping your clients excel, Right. And then your sales leader says, wow, you're intrinsically motivated to sell, and we're going to just add sugar on the top. We're going to give you incentives and bonuses and rankings and trips and all of these things, thinking it's going to make you even more motivated. Right. Well, what the research shows is that actually those extrinsic motivators actually erode intrinsic motivation. Exactly. And so then what happens is if you're a sales leader, let's say you've got someone who's a salesperson and you, you want them to enter information into Salesforce, you know, all their mm-hmm. data. Mm-hmm. And the salesperson hates that because they'd rather be out talking to people than they would, you know, doing the paperwork, right? Mm -hmm. And so the sales leader says, oh, well, they're not intrinsically motivated to use Salesforce. That means we need to give them extrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. So this whole duality that we've set up with intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is too simplistic and it's just not true. Right. And so it's really um, challenging me as I go out and work with executives who are really trying to do the best they can around motivation, um, and they have this idea that 
there's intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, which is too simplistic, and then, or they believe in Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs, which has never been empirically proven, mm -hmm. um, or they believe in carrots and sticks, which we now know is not an effective way to exactly. motivate, yeah. or they believe in McClellan's, you know, um, achievement motivation based on power. So there's all of these beliefs and, and, and baggage that we have around motivation that's making it really challenging. And so that is a really long story for one of the reasons I wrote this new book is we're working in organizations and in homes and going to schools that are still perpetuating motivation from the dark ages. Mm -hmm. And so what we really need to do as individuals is understand the skill of motivation so that we are responsible for our own motivation and we can, despite the environment around us, okay. we right. can shift our own motivation. How, how do senior... Or the, or the leaders you work with, mm -hmm. is that an easy transition for them to grasp onto? Or no, it's easier to throw an incentive. Exactly. You know, exactly. I was at a meeting not too long ago uh, where in an organization where they're bringing out a new product, and I, I was there to watch the new product release. And then um, uh, about, I don't know, at one of the breaks, the, the VP of sales who was at my table leans over and says, Susan. I'm about to be really embarrassed. And I said, why? And he said, because I didn't know you were going to be here. And I go, what's that got? And he goes, I know how you feel about incentives. And I'm about to get up and talk about the incentives right, for selling right. this program. Uh -huh. And I said, well, well, Mark, I said, why do you feel like you need incentives? Do you not think this is a good program? Oh, no, it was a great program. We really did a lot of research. And I said, well, do you think that the clients won't want to buy it? Oh, no, I think the clients are really ready for it. Oh, so you think your salespeople just don't want to sell it? Oh, no, I think they're really excited to have a new product. I go, so then why why do you want the incentive? And he just looks at me, and he's really frustrated. He gets all ready. He goes, I don't know. It's just because it's what we always do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that because they haven't understood the alternatives, mm -hmm. they're really stuck in an old paradigm. You know, you, you mentioned some beliefs. Um, yeah. I think the title of one of your talks is uh, your belief could be impacting, mm. negatively impacting the motivation of your people. Oh, yeah. T tell me about the beliefs a little bit because oh. that's a thing, a subject I've been studying now for about a year. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to me because I, I have the privilege of going literally around the world teaching these ideas, and it doesn't matter where I am, what language people speak, um, I get translated in a lot of different languages. If I have these sentence stems, people in any language know how to fill the blank. Mm -hmm. So if I say, oh, it's not personal, it's just oh. business, business, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. The purpose of business is to make money, money. or a profit. Mm -hmm. um, leaders are in a position of power. Mm -hmm. So what we have are these beliefs. And in my first book, I actually have a chapter that are on the, the beliefs that are holding us back from embracing the, the new concepts of motivation. And so like, if we just look at that first one, oh, it's not personal, it's just business. Where did we get that? I, uh, I have no idea. Yep. I mean, if, if you're my manager and you're talking to me about my goals, my compensation, my hours, you know, my future. How is that not personal? <laughs> you know, it's just it's just unbelievable. And it comes out of this belief that that you didn't have get personal in the workplace. But now seventy five percent of the time that people spend awake as an adult is connected to their work. Right. 
So we got to get personal. And so, you know, I ask leaders, what would change in your leadership if you flipped it and said, if it's business, it's personal? Mm -hmm. How would you act differently? You know, instead of always thinking about what you want from your people, what if you started thinking about what you want for your people? People, right. What would be different? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really important that leaders start to explore their own beliefs about motivation and about human nature. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think that people are basically lazy and that's why you need to incentivize them, you need to think again. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I I talk about a belief is a thought you trust to be true. A belief Mm -hmm. is a thought you trust to be true. Interesting. Yes. And the story I, I share is, you know, when I was 16, 17, my father wasn't a very smart man. He didn't know much about the world. He, was, he wasn't listening to me. And about 21, 22, he became one of the most uh, knowledgeable people that I knew at the time, right? He's a very smart guy. <laughs> now, he didn't change, right? right? My belief about my father changed. Um, and I, I see leaders. It's amazing, amazing how smart he got in those four yeah, years. Right? You know, it, 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 it fascinated me. So, yeah, the belief, um, I call them old files. We all have old files, mm, and like based on experiences, um, you were talking about how leaders interface with you. I had worked for a leader about 25 years ago. I was on his senior staff, and he got them all together. He was a brand new guy in the company. He said, I'm going to ask you for information. I'm going to make all the decisions, and the reason I'm going to do that is because I don't trust any of you. <laughs> And he did this exactly. He says, but I don't want you to take it personal. And we went, what? What are you talking about? Now, two years later, he was gone because he didn't have anybody behind him. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And and I think to this day, he didn't think he did anything wrong. That's right. Right. That's right. And, and those are the leaders that go, wow, they're just missing the boat these days. Yeah. yeah there's a, what we call them. Um, one of the programs that I've created at the Ken Blanchard Companies is called Self-Leadership. And one of our tenants, uh, uh, the, the self-leader mindset, is called challenging assumed constraints. And, you know, that's what a lot of people have are these assumed constraints, these assumptions based on beliefs that they haven't explored and that are limiting their ability to achieve new goals or to take on a different perspective. Right, right. You know, people sometimes ask me, what's your biggest challenge as a leader? And, you know, we've got a, another company called Daytron, and, and I say, you know, my biggest challenge today is people don't believe in themselves as much as I believe in them. Oh, that know, is how, fascinating. How do I get them to believe in themselves? Right, right. And get up to the level that I think they can perform at, right? Yeah, and so thank you, because the skill of motivation, the research has shown that when people are depressed, when they're addicted, when they're bullies, when they're acting out, that a majority of the time, it's because their psychological needs are not being satisfied. Mm. So there's been fascinating research done uh, with anorexia, uh, bulimia, um, gambling, um, alcoholism, um, smoking, and recidivism, um, where when people shift and are able to have choice, connection, and competence satisfied, 
that they are more they feel more in control mm -hmm. um, see a lot of the reason people don't have confidence in the workplace is they don't think they have any choices they don't think they have um, any competence or enough competence exactly and and they haven't found the meaning for gaining those things exactly you know so it's it's I, I, I just have to tell you that I, if, if people I just have this belief that if people could learn the skill to create choice connection and competence in their lives it would change the quality of their life at work, in their personal life, and in their relationships. Right, right. And if I could just give you one just little example. Oh, absolutely. So I travel a lot for my work, and as you probably can tell, I'm a kind of person that likes to control my environment. And I and I'm um, if you're if you know about personality theory, I'm an extroverted controller. Okay, I, I you know yeah. want to control my environment, and I do it directly. And so I'm always in a hurry, and I'm always under a lot of pressure and attention and stress. So I get to the airport, and I'm usually even if I'm even if I'm not late, <laughs> I'm I'm like stressed out. I gotta I gotta get through the fastest or into the fastest line. I gotta get through security quickly. And one day I catch myself. I just have this one of those little mindful moments, and mm -hmm. I catch myself under so much stress because I'm trying to figure out which line is moving most quickly. And I have this criteria that I don't want to get in line with the family. I don't want to get in line with a lot of men because men are so fastidious about the way they take off their jackets and fold them and put them in the bin. <laughs> Women, we just take our stuff off, throw it in the bin and go through. You know, I'm looking at the TSA agents to see which ones seems like they don't really care, you know, and they're moving it through. So I'm looking for the fastest line. And then I stop myself and I think, wow, Susan, why are you doing this yourself? I mean, you're about to get on a plane to go speak about not doing this, exactly. right? Mm -hmm. And I think, well, it's because I have to go through security and I don't have any choices. I have to go through security. And I go, wait a minute, Susan, you just teach people that they always have choice. Mm -hmm. So let's just stop for a moment. And I think, okay, I have suboptimal motivation. I'm feeling imposed right now because I have to go through security. Don't have any choices. Feeling pressure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if I want to shift my motivation and I want it to be, let's say, more aligned. Well, the way you, you shift to an aligned motivational outlook is by attaching whatever you're about to do to some meaningful value mm -hmm. or purpose that you have. And so I'm going... Hey, what are my values? I think, okay, I value learning. You know, that's like I teach what I mostly need to learn. I really love learning. And I think, okay, what could I learn going through security? I thought, patience. Right. Wow, I could mm -hmm. learn patience. Mm -hmm. Okay, how would I learn patience? Get in the longest line. So, mm -hmm. find this line, and it's a doozy. Um, it's got a family in it, and it's not just any family. It's a young uh, man and his wife. Um, a, a toddler and a newborn. I did not know you could go through security with that much stuff. Mm -hmm. So I get behind them and I'm like waiting, 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 and I'm just, it's just painful. And, you know, the father looks at me and he says, Do you want to go ahead of us? This could be a while. And I went, mm, No, it's okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> practicing patience. I didn't say that out loud. But anyway, um, after a while, I couldn't handle it anymore. And I just said, Excuse me, I hope you don't think this is weird, but could I? be helpful if I held your baby mm -hmm. like oh are you kidding that'd be so helpful so I'm holding this baby art I have to tell you I love holding babies oh, I love it love wow. it love it wow. so I'm holding this baby and they get all their stuff packed up or on the on the uh what do you call that thing the, the conveyor belt yep. yeah mm -hmm. and then they're going through security and I go excuse me you want your baby like oh yeah our baby so I gave them their baby they go through on the other side, I hold the baby, they pack up, and we go to our gates. And I'm at my gate, and I'm thinking, wow, that was really cool. I don't know what I really learned, but I got to hold a baby. Mm -hmm. So I'm standing there, and the father 
comes up to me, and I'm, I'm going, oh, what happened? And he said, oh, I'm so glad I found you. He said, this is the first time my wife and I have ever gone through security or traveled with, with two kids, and we had no idea yeah. mm-hmm. how much work it was going to be, and we don't think we could have gotten through it without your help, and we never even thanked you. So I came to find you to say thank you. You really made wow. a difference today. Wow. I said, no, 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 thank you. I got to hold your baby. No, 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 thank you. You really helped us. Yeah. You did good. And that really struck me. Um, and when I was on the plane and I was reflecting, because that's part of the skill of motivation, and I realized he said, you did good. That is my life purpose. Right. My life purpose is to be a catalyst for good. Mm-hmm. So what I learned going through security was that I got to have the inherent motivational outlook. I got to do something I love doing, which is holding a baby. And I got to experience the integrated motivational outlook, which is living my purpose, mm-hmm. doing, being a catalyst for good. The reason I share that story with you is because it wasn't just that one moment. In reflecting on it, it felt so good. And that's what the science says, is that when your needs for choice, connection, and competence are so fulfilled and you're in optimal motivation, it feels so good you want more of it. Mm-hmm. Every time I go through security now, I actually look forward to it. Right. Who can I help? How can I be a catalyst for mm-hmm. good? How can I have some inherent joy, maybe holding a baby or helping someone? So it, it literally changed something in my life that I do quite often. Mm-hmm. See, I, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about the other side of the spectrum when you get off a plane. Mm. I mean, it's like the 100-yard dash. <laughs> right. And I don't get it. You know, you get in late in San Diego, there's no connecting flight. So you're rushing like crazy, and you got all these people. And I go, I'm going to take a walk. I'm not going to race everybody. I don't even know these people, and yet I feel this urge to be with them and race them to the to the taxi or whatever you're getting to parking lot. And you're going to get in line anyway. I was going to say you're going to get in line to wait for your luggage or yeah, whatever exactly. it is. Yeah, so it's isn't it's, that fascinating? It's pretty interesting. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Um, You talked about um, a little bit about your mission about doing good, and that was one of my questions. But I think you answered that one uh, pretty good. Um, you wrote an article called in your um, on your website called uh, uh, written about them going to a master guitar class, and that piqued my interest because I love music, oh. and I use music to teach diversity and leadership with the different types of music from around the world. Uh, I've got a keyboard over there you can see, and it's, I arrange different types of of music from all over the world. And I ask people, would you play this music at your Christmas party? Oh. All right, it may be a polka. I love it. It may be from Asia. (laughs) Uh, It may be from Latin America. And it really gets people to think. So I I really wanna hear about this what you get out of going to a master guitar class? Because do you play guitar? Nope. So what is that all about? <laughs> well, my husband does. My husband's a oh, classic. He okay. Yes. He's a classical guitarist. And so we uh, go to guitar festivals. And when I first started going, I would just fall asleep. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. just like, oh, no. Um, and then I decided, and, and this is really fascinating, um, Ellen Langer, who wrote about mindfulness before it was ever, you know, a thing, um, challenged people to say that if you don't like something, just listen to it or do watch it or engage in it for mm-hmm. 20 minutes and see what you can learn. Right. And, and it's like a, being mindful for those 20 minutes, and you will come to love it. 
And that's exactly what happened to me. Right. And so I came to love it. And so then one of the parts of going to a, a festival is you don't just listen to people play, but you go to these master classes where they're, in this case, it was Pepe Romero, who is known as one of the greatest guitarists in the world, mm-hmm. lives here yeah. in in uh, San Diego, yeah. uh, in Del Mar. And... Um, and so he was doing, and, and we know him, uh, and I and I know his heart. So he's he's working with this young young person, and I just was watching the way he taught, and you know you you have the Servant Leader Institute, and the thing that Pepe did so brilliantly, without even recognizing that's what he's doing because he's such a masterful teacher, was he was giving this young person choice, and the way he would do it is he would ask, he say, so why did you choose? to play it that way. Mm-hmm. And, or why did you choose to play those notes quickly and then slow it down? Or, mm-hmm. And so he made the kid aware that he was making choices. He wasn't just playing the notes. He exactly. was choosing which notes to play. And then he says, do you know why the composer wrote this piece? And the kid says, no. And Pepe says, well, I do because I knew Rodrigo and I talked to him about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so he talks about the, you know, the underlying meaning of why he wrote the piece and what he was trying to convey and what was the emotion behind it. And then he said to the young man, he said, um, when you play the first note, after you play the first note, become aware that it, you're opening a door right. and every note that you play after that is like you're inviting people to come through the door with you. Mm-hmm. So it was just a sense of meaning, connection, not only with the, the composer, but with also with your audience who's listening as you're playing. Right. And then he taught him. He's, he, he actually worked on, you know, technique. And, and I have to tell you, it was fascinating because the, the kid had played the, the piece and then Pepe gave him instruction, and did the, and then he said, okay, now replay the piece. And I'm going to get teary-eyed again. Just The kid played the piece and we were all in tears. Right. It was a totally different, different piece. Yep. Totally. Yeah. And I just sat there and going, wow, I learned about teaching, mm-hmm. and I also learned about learning. It was it, powerful. It, it is very, very powerful. Now, do you know about the Museum for Making Music here in Carlsbad? No. Tell me. Okay. They do uh, great work. Um, they teach kids about music. And they have a museum over here where you can go play on most inter- instruments. And, but they also have a little conference, or, or excuse me, concert hall. But it isn't very big. And so they bring people in from the music industry and they play. And we like to go to the classical uh, guitars and uh, the acoustical guitars. And we were in the front seat at one of these concerts. And I was watching the fingers and I was so focused on the technical part. And after the third song, the, the artist said, I can really tell the people who play guitar because they're not looking at me, they're looking at the guitar. Wow. And I thought, and it didn't hit me until I left and thought about it. What he was saying was, I was missing the emotional oh, that gives me chills. performance yes. because I was fo- focusing too much on the technical side. So I wasn't getting his interpretation of the music I was just looking at the technical part wow you know and and there is an emotional connection with music you think I I, think I have songs that every time I hear it (laughs) I'm like you I get teary-eyed because it means so much to me actually there's there's um, a man that I have met uh, just recently who I I think is going to be in our lives for a long time his name is Gary Malkin and his whole thing is about vibrational emotional intelligence 
and so the whole idea is around um, vibrational intelligence is that um, everything is vibration and music is the highest form of vibration right. and that that w- what we don't have is a skill for understanding that 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 vibration literally changes our chemistry it changes our emotions or it affects all of that and that many of us are listening to music that is actually detrimental to our physical mental and spiritual well-being mm-hmm. and that we don't know the difference sometimes between the music that leads to spiritual well-being and physical well-being and in what destroys it or connection right so it's really it, it, it's i think it's it's a, a new wave of really looking at um yeah at at, at music I, and and sound um, i love sound therapy it's you know last year um the movie about queen yes and and live aid and right. you know i was on a plane there wasn't much to to watch, so I said, what the heck, I'll, I'll play it. Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian that Rhapsody, yeah, and yeah. you know what? I was fascinated by it. And the emotions that came out in that 20-minute set at Live Aid in the UK um, was amazing. And, and what he believed in was interaction with the audience. Exactly. He wanted to give them an experience. A connection. And be part of it, he was connecting. And you know, I've watched that movie probably almost seven or eight times because every time I do, I learn something different. Isn't that fascinating? I saw it in a theater with some musicians Mm -hmm. and in that 20 minute set, there wasn't a dry eye in the theater. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, so that is of the three, the three psychological needs, that's connection. We can gain that connection through music. I watched the Grammys last, this past Sunday, Mm -hmm. same thing, you know, Alicia Keys just talking about the the power of music to heal and to to bring us together. And there's probably no greater way in the world to, to bring people together than through, you know, high vibrating music, I'll say. Um, And so that's a form of connection. And so you know, what I'm asking leaders, you know, if you're talking about servant leadership, um, I'm asking leaders to think about the ways they can help create connection at work. Right. You know, we, we talk about how do we give people choice or how do we, you know, um, give people the competence they need so they can make better choices at work. If we do all of that, but we're not helping people make meaning at work, mm-hmm. if, if we give them you know, uh, metrics without meaning, if if we're talking about profit as the, the reason we're doing what we're doing, instead of profit being, as you say, and, and Ken always says, you know, profit is the applause, the applause that right. you get at the, at the, you know, from doing what's the right thing, um, then we're missing the boat in right. the, in, 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 at work. And, and what the research says, this is going to be a 25 cent word, but there's no th- such thing as compensatory need satisfaction. In other words, you can't not get choice, connection, and competence at work and hope you're going to make up for it oh, outside okay. of work. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so if you're not getting the connection you need at work, if you're not feeling meaning or genuine connection to the people you work with or alignment with your values regarding your goals, if you're not getting that at work, then you're probably not getting it outside of work exactly. in the in the amount that you need, mm-hmm. which is why we end up making such dumb choices, you know, in our relationships and in the food we eat. Right. You know, a lot of the times, you know, and this is what was fascinating about looking at um, the research around eating and drinking and um, other habits that that people do not because they need it physiologically. So when we over drink or we overeat, 
it's not because we're hungry or thirsty because our biological needs have probably been satisfied. Exactly. It's yep. that our psychological needs are hungry. Mm-hmm. So we need to create that choice, connection, and competence. So the reason, you know, I write in my book, and I, I'm, I just wrote a blog about this for Smart Brief on Leadership, the reason diets don't work is as soon as you say I'm on a diet and I can't eat something, right. you've just eroded your choice. <laughs> Right? And they go, Uh oh, I need choice because we do. We need a sense of choice, Mm -hmm. but I can't have that muffin. So we think it's all about the muffin. No, it's about choice. So then you have to stop and say, well, what choices do I have? Mm -hmm. I could choose to eat the muffin. Right. I could choose to take a bite of the muffin. I could choose to lick the muffin. You know what I mean? I have a lot of choices here. <laughs> but as soon as you think you don't have the choice, the one thing you want is choice, and so you eat the muffin right. um, because you want to be in control again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's it's. Um, I, I, just, I just think that it's really important as leaders and as individuals that we are very aware when we don't have choice, connection, and competence mm-hmm. and how to create it. And so my books are all about that. How do you create Creative. choice, connection, and competence? And I'm glad, you know, that you've talked about angel faces and volunteerism. You know, that's a great way for connection, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that we talk about music, and it's a great way to connect, or it could be a great way to divide, right. um, depending on the quality of the music. And so, yeah, we just need to be really more creative about choice, connection, and competence. Yeah, you know, I have to share a story with our listeners uh, this was probably three years ago. Our conference here in San Diego was focused on music, and we called it the Music of Servant Leadership. And one of the things we did at the beginning was we played different songs that would bring people together. And we talked about it at Christmas parties. When they play songs that nobody can relate to, there's nobody dancing. Right. You play a song that everybody relates to, everybody jumps on the dance floor. So, so what is it about YMCA? Anyway, y- go ahead. And, and that's exactly, we took a risk on that one. YMCA, we invited leaders to come up on the stage and do YMCA. Love it. And we, we weren't sure, so we asked one or two people, would you just come up? Susan, the stage was packed. I got chills again. Packed. And I went, holy smokes, all these business people that were sitting there starting the conference, they had no problem jumping on a stage and making fools of themselves. So, so Art, and, that's and, a perfect and, example. And they loved getting together. They do. Right? They didn't it, know each other. Yeah, it yeah. was. they made the choice to get up there mm-hmm. because of the need for connection, connection. is so strong. Right. Um, tell us about the survey you have on your website. Now, I took oh. it. And there were a couple questions that, I mean, you had two different ends of the, of the, of the bookends of what I call them. I go, I wish you had one in the middle because I wanted to click the one in the middle because I'm going, okay. And I had to ask myself, how do I feel at this moment? Yeah. And, and so that's the one I clicked on. So tell me a little bit about the, the survey you have on your website because anybody can take it, right? Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. free. Yeah. yeah. So it's scientifically based, Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons that we give you the polarity of options is because you can't be optimally and suboptimally motivated at the same time. Oh, and okay. so it's a real it's a way for you to really start to understand and gain clarity. Right. So oftentimes there's what we think we should be versus what we actually are. Exactly. So I should be values based in this situation, but the fact is I'm really hoping someone's going to love me more or that I'm going to be more powerful or this is going to give me a sense of status or or whatever. So we're asking people to to really become aware. So the the survey um, not only gives you some valid results, but it's designed to get you to think 
about the different ways uh, that you can be motivated. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so the result is that you're either suboptimally motivated or optimally motivated, which is different than intrinsic and, ex- in, and intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. Suboptimal motivation is like the fast food of motivation. It's gotcha. like yep. when you're motivated that way, it's 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 like eating that candy bar instead of the handful of almonds. Right. And then if you're uh, optimally motivated, and so then the feedback you get is, is information about each of the three suboptimal motivational outlooks or three of the optimal motivational outlooks. And then you can kind of fine tune and better understand the nature of your motivation. Um, and that's because, again, motivation is a skill. So it's understanding, right. you know, these different elements. Right. So I right. hope people will take it. I think it's fun. And it does give you some, I think, um, good. And, and again, it's not just something I threw together and, oh, isn't that a fun survey? Mm-hmm. It it really is scientifically based. And we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people have taken it. And it's based on a, a valid and reliable instrument, um, even though the way I portray it on the website right. is different than a, a valid and reliable instrument. It's based on that. Based on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting because when we hire, uh, and, and I focus more on leaders, um, when I see leaders who have a struggle inside of them that says, this is who the organization thinks I need to be, mm-hmm. and this is who I really am. Mm-hmm. And when there's a bigger spread between those two data points, the more we're going to have to invest in training with them. Interesting. Right? And yeah. the closer they are when they yep. come in, the less training we have to do with them because we have to get them comfortable with, the, with themselves first, and then we can integrate them into our mission, purpose, and values. Well, I love that. My husband and I, when we teach, um, my husband, the one who just tried to call me uh, Mm -hmm. in the middle of our podcast, um, we teach at the University of San Diego and the course, we we teach in the master's program and the first week, we teach a week-long course um, at at the beginning of the the two-year experience that the cohort's going through and then we teach the last weekend. So we book and the two-year experience for people. Mm -hmm. And in that first week, we're talking about self-preparation for leadership. And one of the things that we discuss is the persona triad, which is what you were just describing. There's the self that we think we are. It's the self we would like to be. And it's the self we think everybody else wants us to be. And the more divergent those three points are, the the less congruent we are, the more stressed out we are, the more pressure we feel, the more aligned those things are, the more energy, the more positive energy we're going to have to be able to serve others. Exactly. So you're right on. I've got the triad. I I like Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I like that because there are three data points. Exactly. Uh, Susan, uh, wrap up. Is there any single thing you can uh, give to our listeners today where they can start working on the concepts you're teaching? Outside of, you got to go buy her books. You got to go read about her (laughs) uh, because she does some great work. Well, thank you for that. Yes, um, I would say that if, if this right now, just starting right now, no matter what you're doing, if you sim- even just listening to this podcast, if you could ask yourself about choice. So ask yourself, what choices have I made? Mm-hmm. How do I feel about those choices? Mm-hmm. What choices could I be making? Then the next question you would ask yourself regarding anything you're doing in that moment is, how does this bring meaning to me? Is this aligned with my values? What are my values? Mm-hmm. Do I feel a genuine sense of connection and, um, and belonging with the people involved in whatever it is that I'm doing? That's connection. And then to ask yourself questions around competence, like what skills do I bring to this? What skills could I learn? I think one of the most important questions we could ask ourselves at the end of every day or when we're involved in a goal or any activity is simply to ask ourselves, 
what have I learned? Right. What have I learned that has helped me grow that will help me be better tomorrow? So if we could just ask ourselves questions about what choices am I making? How am I creating connection? And how am I growing and learning and developing competence? It will change the quality of your life. Right. And, and what I love about that is it starts with the individual. It's individual choice. And you, that's what I, I encourage leaders, start with yourself. Oh, thank you for saying that. Right. You, you, that, so I don't care who you are. You need to start doing this. I'm speaking to 350 CEOs and board chairmen of credit unions in Hawaii in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. so, one of those really fun gigs. And that's my whole message to them. You know, stop trying to motivate other people and learn the skill of motivation for yourself. Right. Exactly. And then you're going to figure out how to create an organization where people have choice, connection, and competence and are more likely to experience optimal motivation. Yeah. Great, great. Susan, thank you for being with us. Thank today. you. I learned a whole lot today. I did too. Uh, so thank you for pouring value into me. Thank you for pouring value into our listeners. Uh, Susan Fowler, everyone. Um, your website? www.susanfowler.com. I love it. Easy. Yes. Um, has all your book information out there. Yeah, thank uh, you. Go invest in yourself. Get some of this information. And... Um, start with yourself. So Susan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Art. This has been a good choice. Had a lot of meaning and connection for me and I learned a lot. So, great. whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great, great. Now I'm going to be thinking all day today about my choices. You good. realize that, right? And connection and, and confidence. Con well, I'll, I'll get to those two, but no, I got to no, make a choice first. Yeah, yeah. I got, you. I got you. I got you. <laughs> okay, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, investing your time with us uh, today. And, um, Susan is a very special person with a special heart, so uh, I think you can learn a lot from her. So, again, Susan, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Art. Okay, everybody, thank you very much, and look uh, forward to future podcasts. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We have a free gift for you to go along with this conversation. Susan has a great article titled Chomp that we would love to send to you. To receive this free gift, just email us at info at servantleadershipinstitute.com with the subject titled, Activating Optimal Motivation, and we will send it over to you. Again, to learn more about Susan Fowler and all she does, visit her website at susanfowler.com. And for all things SLI, visit our website at servantleadershipinstitute.com. Thanks again for listening and allowing us to add value to your day.